Father, we thank you this morning for your great love. Thank you that you are unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our rock. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would do the miracle where you move the truth that we just sang about from our heads to our hearts and that you would cause us to, as has been said already this morning, to not be afraid, that we fear not for you are with us. But Lord, we pray that we just would not be afraid. We pray that we would also be bold, that we would be courageous, that we would be obedient, that we would truly live in the joy that your love produces. And that, God, we would truly be your hands and feet, your people, your bride, your body, your family, and that you would be honored and glorified in and through our lives. We ask all these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Please go to Hebrews chapter 7. That's where we were this past week in the Bible reading plan. I believe God in his great providence has really given us a word this morning from his word that I think is timely. Um, you might not see it immediately, but I have really been encouraged by this this past week. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, just to give a little background, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110, and then I will, I will pick it up in Hebrews chapter 7. But you just go to Hebrews chapter 7 and you can join me when I get there, but these scriptures play in and give a backdrop for much of what we're going to talk about in Hebrews 7 this morning. In Genesis chapter 14, it says, after Abraham's return from the defeat of Shedolamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then I want to read from Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm from the old, or the most quoted scripture from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then Hebrews 7 will begin in verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And then jump over in chapter 7 to verse 23, and let me read a few more verses over here. Verse 23 of chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save 
to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Thanks for your great and precious promises by which we are made partakers in the divine nature, you tell us. We pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and that you would wield it through my broken words to accomplish exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think and open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So yeah, what a week, huh? You guys doing all right? Good? Glad you're here. Good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, Again, not the building, but his people. Whenever God's people come together, we are the temple where God now dwells uh, individually, but also collectively, and God inhabits the praises of his people. So crazy week, as has already been mentioned by Conrad. I thought Conrad was going to steal all my thunder this morning during announcements, man. He was just going forward. He's quoting A.W. Tozer, and I was like, man, calm down. I got to have something to say. Um, <coughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, beginning of the week, about this time last week, people were in some cities were boarding up their windows and their businesses because of the unrest that they thought might ensue, and we've had a lot of that already this year. Of course, we're continuing to... Uh, um, have the issue of COVID, and especially here in our local context, you know, there's kind of a, a bit of a wave right now or a spike that many people are, are, are fighting through. Um, and then, of course, we have the election, and not just an election, but a contested election. And so, uh, you know, we always need the Word of God, but especially in weeks like this past week, um, man, we just need a word from His Word. And so, of course, With all that going on, the most logical place to go is to the Melchizedekian priesthood, right? That's what you were all thinking this morning, this past week. You're all thinking, I know what we need, Melchizedek. No, I'm saying that somewhat sarcastically. However, I I really do mean it. I believe that God has provided a, a real timely word for us. And again, this past year's for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, as we've been reading just through the New Testament together and then kind of preaching from one of those chapters here on Sunday mornings, um, I believe God in his gracious and merciful providence had us in Hebrews 7 through 11 this past week. And here's the reason it's timely. is because no matter what the situation, the need is always the same. And that is for people to rightly know who God is through his son, Jesus Christ, and what God has provided for us um, in his son. And so the need is no different uh, today. And in fact, in the writer, the writer of Hebrews, just to give a little backdrop and context, he is writing to a people who have gone through a pretty difficult time. And as he's writing this letter to them in the original context in the early church, uh, they are going through a difficult time. Then we get a little bit of insight into this. And I'll just read this from Hebrews chapter 10. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and those are, again, friends and family that were in prison because of their faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They had their homes, they had their lands taken because of their faith, their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. So these people had been through it. They had been seriously through it. 
They had had people that had been martyred. There were people that had lost their property. There were people that were thrown in prison because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what's so interesting. This was soon after they began to follow Jesus. But now this letter is written several years later. And here's what's beginning to happen. Is they're beginning to grow tired. They're beginning to grow weary. They've been in the battle and they fought well. But just because you start well doesn't mean you always end well. It's a fight, folks. It's a fight. And we are beginning to end because of the faithfulness of Christ, our rock, as we've sung about this morning. We are to stand firmly from beginning to end on our rock, Christ. And so what the writer of Hebrews does, and one of the things that makes Hebrews unique is that we don't know for sure uh, who the author of it was. It probably wasn't Paul who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament, but probably was not him. We'll find out someday when we get to heaven. But what the writer does is, in the midst of these difficult times, now that these people had begun well, but now, you know, as time goes on, they're kind of becoming weary and wanting to fall away is he does the same thing that's always needed he points them back to jesus he points them back to jesus to the person and work of jesus christ and you think that sounds simple but folks i'm telling you that is just the drum that we beat until he comes we look at him and we look at him in his glory and here's the connection in fact if i was going to do i'm kind of Again, this, I've told you this Bible reading plan is driving me nuts because there's so much I want to talk about and I don't have time to talk about it all. But someday, if I ever do a series on the book of Hebrews, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, well, the title will be Hebrews, but the subtitle will be, very creative, I know, um, but the subtitle will be Preeminence and Perseverance. Preeminence and Perseverance is that there is a connection between whether or not we persevere as to whether or not we see the preeminence of Jesus. Preeminence just simply meaning that he is above all. He's absolutely above all. And when we see him as he is, it produces perseverance in our hearts and in our lives. And so many people are trying to persevere in their own strength, and that's just not the way it works. The source of our perseverance is the preeminence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter to them, and he's not telling them anything new, but he's refreshing their minds from the Old Testament. The the book of Hebrews is incredible, because what he does is he just takes the scriptures that they had, the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures were obviously being written during this time, and he just goes through, gives kind of this sweeping, uh, um, awesome, exegetical display of going through the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is always better than anything else that they have to offer. And so he starts off, and Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the temple. He's better than the promised land that was promised to Old Testament Israel. He is our promised land. He is our rest. He is the place where we find abundance. He's better than the sacrifices. And then here in chapter 7, he comes and he says, he is the better Melchizedek. And all of us might have been tracking with everything I just said, and then we're like, who, what? Melchizedek. I'm telling you, if you like value, Melchizedek is your man because nowhere else, apart from Jesus, no other biblical character will give you more bang for your buck. Yeah? Amen? You like to, sh- like to find the sale? This is it right here. Not that it's cheap, but it's a good, good, good deal. It's because we d- I read to you pretty much all the passages, um, for sure the two in the Old Testament, that mention Melchizedek. Only in Genesis chapter 14 and only in Psalm 110 is he found and the writer of hebrews again like he's taken all these other old testament people and themes and and kind of uh controlling factors of the temple and such and now he comes to melchizedek and he's going to show how jesus is the greater melchizedek but how god has always had a plan so get ready here with me let's do some work 
and uh, from the scriptures, and let me try to unpack why Melchizedek um, and his priesthood that God established and the Jesus that he points to is such good news for us this morning. So here's what ha- was happening. Back in Genesis chapter 14, is that you have Abraham, who God has called out in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, Abram kind of bursts onto the scene, and God just says out of nowhere, Abram has not done anything to deserve this, but God says, I will bless you. Like, why do you do that? Because he's gracious. That's why he did it. He says, I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And he calls him out, and he says, I, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And so that's why Abraham was called the father of our faith, because he displayed faith many times during his life. He was far from a perfect man, made some great mistakes. But God says, get up and go. Where do you want me to go? And God just says, just go, and I'll show you. And so Abraham begins in faith. He begins to move. He begins to go. And so you guys know the story of Abraham and Lot. Um, Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Lot goes and he settles down in the valley near Sodom and Gomorrah, which is not going to be a great place to settle. Um, but he goes down and he, and he settles there. Um, before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a little turf war. Now you've got to understand, this is way back in the day in antiquity, and this is before there were even really countries, okay? And so what you had were these little cities, but they, even, or they really weren't even that big of cities. There were city, I mean, there were some that were maybe 100,000 people, but most of these little cities or towns were more like five, ten thousand 10,000 people, something like that, or somewhere in between there and 100,000. And, and so uh, what happens is, is these, there's a few kings that come together and they make war against Sodom and a few other kings, and they have this big battle. And uh, because Lot, Abram's nephew, was living near Sodom, he gets captured by this other group. So Lot's, the, the Sodom guys and all those guys, they get taken captive, all right? So Abram hears about this, and he says, well, that's, that's my nephew. I've got to go after him. And so he knows the Lord is with him. So he goes after him in battle, and he pursues these, these guys, and he overtakes them, and he gets Lot and his nephew back. Now, he's returning from that battle, Okay, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Melchizedek. And again, this is going to be important later, as we'll see, but Melchizedek, we know nothing about him. One of the big things in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as you read it, it's a lot of genealogies. It's so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so because you wanted to be tied in to the Abrahamic blessing (coughs) that God had promised. But Melchizedek comes totally out of nowhere. And again, Genesis 14 that I read at the beginning just says, and all of a sudden, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So I'll unpack this more later, but there's a priesthood that God had set up. Now, you got to understand, this is about 500 years before the Levitical priesthood, okay? Can I get that one chart up there, Conrad? Or Avery. Avery's working the screen today. Avery, how old are you? Nine? You're the man, buddy. Almost ten. Let's round it up. Ten. Always round up. Thanks for serving, Avery. I'm serious, buddy. Appreciate it. So, Melchizedek and Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. Now, the Levitical priesthood, which is the priesthood that most of us are familiar with when we're talking about Old Testament priesthood, that is not even going to be established until Sinai, which is going to be about 500 years later. Okay, so this is happening, this priesthood is happening about 500 years before, before Moses, before Sinai, before the deliverance um, of the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt. But it just says simply that he was priest of God Most High. 
And then that's, that's all it says. And then it says that he, that he blessed him, okay? And so then, if you'll keep that up there, so you're going to have Melchizedek and Abraham, the situation in Genesis 14. Then you're going to have Sinai, the Le- Levitical priesthood established through Aaron and his sons uh, about 500 years later. And then, I forgot to put the date up there, but then David writes Psalm 110, which is the other place where Melchizedek is mentioned, and that's about 500 years after the Levitical priesthood and 1,000 years after this incident with Melchizedek and Abraham. And David, I think probably just through reading the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament scriptures, the Pentateuch and Genesis included in that that he had, I think he read about this Melchizedek figure and David wrote Psalm 110 and he's having his devotions and one day he says, he kind of writes this down, Psalm 110, he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay? And so, you have this priesthood that had been, that had been established, and then we learn, hear nothing else about Melchizedek in all of the Old Testament until some of the New Testament authors pick it up, primarily here um, in Hebrews chapter 7. And so go to Hebrews chapter 7 now. That's just a little bit of the background. In Hebrews chapter 7, and let's let the inspired author of the book of Hebrews exegete these Old Testament scriptures from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 for us and tell us about the importance of Melchizedek and how it ties in with Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, is priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, as we just read. Verse 2, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Abraham gave tithes to him. He is, by first of translation of his name, king of righteousness. The name Melchizedek, now he was a king, but Melchizedek doesn't just mean righteousness, it means king of righteousness, or uh, just as good of a translation would be justice. So he is the king of righteousness and or justice. Okay, that's what Melchizedek means. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness or justice. And then he is also king of Salem. Salem means peace. So you have this king who was also a priest, and we'll get to the priest part here after a little bit. But you first of all have this king of righteousness and justice and peace. That's Melchizedek. And folks, what's neat about this is that even though we don't know where he came from, we know that, you know, God was in charge of it all is that way back at the very beginning, God knew that what we would need far above anything else is a king, someone to lead us in righteousness and in justice and in peace. If you can put that, can you put that chart back up there for me again? And you'll see, just to make sure we're connecting the dots, although these aren't hard to get with how this ties in with Jesus, 2000 BC, here comes this king of righteousness and justice, this king of Salem. Salem means peace. 2000 years later, around 30 AD or whenever Christ died, you have another king, the truer, better king of righteousness, justice, and peace dying just outside of a city called not Salem, but Jerusalem, the city of peace. Someday, 
when this whole thing ends, and this king who is now enthroned on high, because he's, and we'll get to this, done what he needed to do as a priest in the order of Melchizedek and offered his eternal blood for all those who have believed in him, we will reign with him in the new Jerusalem, the new city of peace. And folks, here's, am I making sense? Are you following me? This is awesome. Because God has known that this is what we've always needed. We've needed a king of righteousness and justice that would lead us and rule us in that righteousness and justice in a place of peace where we can dwell forever. You know, this past year, 2020, <coughs> um, in some ways is like any other year, but in many ways it is not like any other year. And it seems that when the world goes into turmoil, there's always, if you're following the Lord, there's these little glimmers of kind of tragic yet prophetic irony that exists. And as I was studying this this past week and thinking about this king of righteousness, justice, and peace, do you remember many times what was chanted in the streets this past year at many of the protests, mainly involving George Floyd and his death? Do you remember what they'd say? Many times, you can find this all over the place, no justice, no peace. Do you remember that? No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And I say tragic irony because there's a sense in which they are so right. There's a sense in which they're so right. You will not have peace without justice. And so no justice, no peace. And yet there's another sense, and this is why I say a tragic irony, is because they will not find it apart from Jesus. They will not find it apart from the better Melchizedek, the true king of righteousness and justice and peace. And folks, we got to remember where we're at in this story, okay? If I can just talk to you for a second, just as, as one of your pastors, as one of, as one of your shepherds, we have to remember our spot in this story. Is that right now we're living between the first time Christ came and he did what he needed to do and shed his blood outside of Jerusalem, the city of peace, and we're waiting for that next time to come. And between now and then, yes, we work for justice, we work for righteousness, we work for peace, but folks, we will not have it finally and perfectly and completely until the better Melchizedek comes again and sets it out. And my great concern for us as disciples is just that in the midst of these times that we would act like Christians. Amen? That we would act like we know the real king of righteousness and justice and peace. And not just act like it pretending because we don't act, because we do, like we know him. <laughs> He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He is our king. And so let's, let's act like it. God knows that this is what we've always needed. And when he comes back, 
when our King Jesus comes back, there is going to be no need for a recount. No need. No need. I'm being serious. Because when he who comes back and is going to rule in righteousness, justice, and peace and with a rod of iron, all of us who know him as our Savior, we're going to be caught up together with him and we're going to accompany him back to the earth. He is going to set up his kingdom and we are going to reign with him forever. But for whoever doesn't like it, they're not going to be calling for a recount because a vote has nothing to do with it. He lays claim to us and to this world, to this creation, because he is king. And for those who don't know him, they will cry out for the rocks and for the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And between now and then, our job as disciples is to boldly, boldly stand and proclaim the message of the gospel. That when he does come back and he does set up the new Jerusalem, the true, purest, perfect, final, complete city of peace, that many would be there with us. Because we shared the truth of the gospel. And no matter what anyone has done, no matter how wicked they have been, no matter how much they have not worked for justiceness and righteousness and peace, if they repent, if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, salvation is theirs, and they can know the same king that we know. That's right. But folks, it is our job to share this message. No matter what's going on in the world, this is what we do until he comes. We proclaim this better Melchizedek. So he's the king of righteousness, justice, and peace, but he's also this better priest. So again, in in the Levitical priesthood, and this gets a little bit technical here, this is actually what the writer of Hebrews is now gonna unpack for the majority of this chapter through verse three all the way through the end of the chapter, through verse 28. He's gonna move from talking about the kingship of Melchizedek as he just explained in verse two, and he's gonna talk about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, according to the Levitical priesthood, and by Levitical, it's just all the, it's the sons of Levi were the priests. So you have Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob. Jacob has 12 tribes, you remember this? Okay, one of those, or, um, or 12 sons who were 12, became 12 tribes, one of those was Levi. So it was out of the, the tribes of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, that they were to be um, the priests. According to the Levitical priesthood, you, couldn't, you, were, you could not be both a king and a priest, okay? If you remember the Old Testament story of Saul, who was the first king uh, of Israel, he got in trouble in the, the, um, the uh, uh, kingship, the throne got taken from him and eventually given to David because he tried to act as both a king and a priest. And he was supposed to remember the story, he was supposed to wait for Samuel, who's gonna come and offer some sacrifices. Samuel was a little late in showing up. Saul gets nervous, and so he tries to act like a priest, and that was very much disobedient in the sight of God, and so God takes uh, the kingship from him. But now, in the order of Melchizedek here, you see that there was, a different, there was a different order of priesthood set up that Jesus was going to come and attach to. So can I get that other slide up there, Conrad? And this is really, really simple. 
but just to give you the idea. So you have the Levitical priesthood, and you know you have Aaron was Aaron's great great Aaron's great grandfather was Levi, okay, the tribe of Levi. Aaron he had Nadab and Abihu. They burned strange fire to the Lord. God wipes them out. He had another son, Eleazar, and then Phineas, Eli. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phineas. Phineas, they were also wicked. And then it just goes on down the line. Boom, 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 forever. All these tribes, okay. So this is the Levitical priesthood. And those lines, it just goes on forever with all these different tribes, people, priests from the tribe of Levi. But the Melchizedekian priesthood, <laughs> you've, got, you've got two. You've got Melchizedek, and then you've got Jesus. And again, God set this whole thing up so that we could understand who he is. Now, here's the big idea with priesthood that you've got to get, okay? There's, there's a lot of technicality going on here, and I don't have time to unpack all of this in <clears throat> the rest of Hebrews 7. But here's the big idea, is that when it comes to priesthood, it's the idea of an intermediary or a mediator. It's someone who stands in the gap and represents you to someone else. In this place, in, 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 we're represented to God. Kind of the idea of a lawyer, although it's not apples to apples, um, but there are some parallels there, is that a lawyer represents you to the judge. God is more, more than judge, but again, there's some parallels. So this priesthood was established, okay, um, so that Christ could eventually come and then do what he's going to do, not according to the order of Levi, because here, and let me jump in and show you what, how the author is unpacking this. Again, I know it's somewhat technical, but man, this, this theology matters, and it's awesome. Go down to verse 11, of Hebrews chapter seven. And he says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, okay, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named from the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. In other words, he's saying, the Levitical priesthood, the law, the standard of righteousness is just that. It's the standard of righteousness, but it cannot change you. It can tell you what the standard is, but it cannot help you reach that standard. So that priesthood was always going to fall short, he's saying. And God knew that. And so he set up this Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, he's going to go on here and continue to tease us out. He says, verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. That's right, according to the flesh, Jesus was descended from Judah, not the tribe of Levi. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Again, what we know about Melchizedek is we don't know where he comes from, and then we're never told that he dies. He's just kind of there. Now there's some debate, some people think that this was actually a supernatural pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ come in the flesh kind of before the incarnation. Many Christians that hold that view, nothing wrong with it. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think the author is just unpacking here that this is what we know about him and so he comes in the likeness of Christ. He has no beginning and he has no end and he came just to establish this one priesthood that Christ would eventually be attached to. Okay, so verse 17 then, he's gonna quote from Psalm 110. It says, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, that was David writing that a thousand years after Melchizedek came to meet Abraham in Genesis 14. 
For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of the weakness and its usefulness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And here's the key is that in order to, uh, the reason this priesthood matters is because it is through this priesthood that we draw near to God through Jesus Christ. He is our intermediary, our mediator. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And so again, he's quoting Psalm 110 here, this promise that's given that a better priest is gonna come, not from the Levitical priesthood, but from the line of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant in verse 23, and I read these earlier, the former priests were ma- many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So Levitical priest, they would, uh, you would bring them a sheep, a dove, a lamb, a bull, a goat, depending on the circumstance. They would offer it on your behalf eventually you would have to do the same thing again because you would continually sin. And so they would continually offer up the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs and such because that could never actually pay the penalty for sin. But it was a shadow that pointed to the substance that was to come ultimately in Christ. Not only would your sacrifices never be good enough, but your priest, no matter who he was, even if he was just a really good guy, Okay, and there were good priests and bad priests. He would eventually die. He could not stand forever and make intercession for you. And then the next guy would come and he could not stand forever and make intercession for you. And the reason that's important is because we need somebody to make intercession for us forever. Throughout all of eternity, even though, yes, we will be glorified We will still dwell in eternity forever only because of the blood of Christ. His blood is eternal. His sacrifice is eternal. His priesthood is eternal. And all that to say that, brothers and sisters, you have no idea this morning. I have no idea of our great need for Jesus. If if Jesus does not do for us what he did, we have absolutely, positively no hope. But every day we wake up and we look to another hope. We look to something else, some other thing, some other person, some other politician, money, whatever it might be to save us. And there is salvation found in no other name except the name of Jesus. And for all of eternity, for those of us that have been justified, that have trusted in the blood of Christ and him alone for salvation, we will stand for all of eternity because our high priest lives now and will live then forever to make intercession for us. The reason I will wake up a Christian 10 years from now, the reason you will wake up a Christian 10 years from now is because Jesus will continue to stand with his sacrifice and as high priest interceding for us on behalf of the Father. And so what we have to do over and over again is just one thing. Every day we come to him. Every day we trust him. We believe in him. We don't run to another. We, even when things get difficult, as again, the recipients of this uh, letter in the, in the original context, as I said earlier, they were beginning to, well, man, this is getting difficult. 
is Jesus really going to be enough? Is he really going to see us through? Maybe we should look somewhere else. And the writer writes to them and he says, no. Where else would you go? Jesus has passed through death. So we don't fear death. Jesus passed through being rejected and came out the other side. So we do not fear being rejected. <coughs> Everything I just said, he just sums up here much better than I probably just did. Well, for sure, better than I just did. Verse 24. <clears throat> but he, being Jesus, holds his priesthood, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he's done all this theological work, and again, we, we just breeze through it there on the priesthood side, but just to give you the big idea. And then he says this, verse 25. Consequently, or therefore, big word, because here's the implication of all this heady theology stuff. You're like, why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, I don't use the word uttermost a lot, but when it's in the Bible, we'll take it. Amen? He is able to save to the uttermost completely, totally, fully. Those who draw near to God through him. Guys, we don't need to look anywhere else. Jesus is enough. Jesus got it done when he came to this earth 2,000 years ago, and he continues to get it done. He gets it done for us every day. Do you know that? Amen? He gets it done for us every day. We don't acknowledge it all the time. Sometimes we're very flippant about it. Many times we don't thank him for it at all. But every day, Jesus gets it done. Because he stands and he lives since he always lives to make intercession for them. Worship team, you can come up and we'll close. You thankful for Jesus this morning? Just a couple questions. Number one, as I've already said, I just... Guys, this morning, have you forgotten, in this past week, have you forgotten your place in the story? Have you been looking for righteousness and justice and peace somewhere other than Jesus? God knew that these are the things that we needed, and so he established it long before we ever even knew that we needed it. He established it all the way back in the garden. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he took an animal, doesn't say for sure, but probably a lamb. And he killed it. He shed its blood, and then he clothed them in the garment that that lamb provided. Don't forget your place in the story. That there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back, and we reign with him in the new Jerusalem, the new city of peace. And it is going to be awesome. Secondly, <coughs> this morning, are you trying to produce perseverance apart from preeminence? Are you trying to 
cling on tight and just go and run and get through this. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, and so Christians aren't supposed to be afraid, and so I'm not going to be afraid. But inside, you're really afraid, and you're just pretending like you're not really afraid. God's will for you isn't to pretend like you're not afraid. God's will for you is to actually not be afraid, right? That's what we do. I'm a Christian, I'm not afraid. Inside, you're terrified. That, that's, that's not what he wants for you. He hasn't called you to pretend. He's called you to actually not be afraid. And this morning, again, no matter where you're at, no matter if you're a believer or non-believer, if you come to Jesus this morning, you can truly not be afraid. His preeminence is the only thing that will produce perseverance in your life. And then lastly, very simply, do you have peace? Do you have real peace? Can I get that last picture up there, Conrad? This was, uh, this just spoke to me yesterday. Picture of the, yeah, pictures never do it justice. Um, My wife's phone has a better camera than mine. That's how it always goes. I always get the cheap phone. My wife gets the nice phone. Anyway, I don't know. That doesn't matter. Anyway, but we were doing our little golf cart run around the lake yesterday. It was very beautiful. Yeah, beautiful weather. And I don't know, but like the lake was just, I mean, it was just like glass. It was just a mirror. And this doesn't quite do it justice, but if you, could, you can see the reflection from the trees on the lake. And it was just, looking at that lake was almost just like looking at the trees. And the definition for the Greek word used in the New Testament over and over again, that's used for peace in the New Testament, is this. Almost all of them will say, total tranquility. That's it. Total tranquility. And the idea is that of a lake that's just perfectly calm. Perfectly calm. And I say that because, brothers and sisters, what God wants for us is if we confess that we truly know the better Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem, and the whole world, then our lives truly should be perfectly calm, total tranquility. And when people look at us, it's not quite the same, but it's close. And they should see the reflection of our Savior. They should see the reflection of our King in us. Amen? It's what He wants for us. And so this morning as we come, we're going to sing one more song. I just want to give an invitation just for you right where you're at. Just right where you're at. Come to the King of peace and let Him calm your heart and know that He wants to do this for you because He loves you. Because justice, righteousness, they have been established in Him. And He wants your life to be a reflection of his beauty to the world. Father, thanks for this morning. We love you. We thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that you would have your way in our lives and that you would be honored and glorified. And I pray this morning for your peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, stand with